1: Today on the show, I would like to welcome Jenny Thrasher, founder of the nonprofit Growing Out of Darkness, also referred to as Good, founder of All That We Are, and the author of Growing Through Grief, A Guide to Healthy Healing After Losing a Loved One to Suicide. We have a lot to explore and a lot to talk about today, Jenny, and welcome.
2: Thank you for having me, Summer. It's an honor to be here.
1: Absolutely. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Before we dive into your professional background, I'd like, if you could, to describe your journey thus far in one word. Love. Tell me more.
2: For me, I realized that love is the most powerful healing element that we possess within ourselves. And it is one that we can use to heal ourselves as well as the people around us.
1: I love that. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to talk about a lot today, but let's start off with your nonprofit, Growing Out of Darkness. Please tell us the mission a little bit about this
0: nonprofit.
2: Yes. So Growing Out of Darkness started in 2017 when I realized that a letter that I had started writing three years prior had turned into a book. And, and so to give you some background on that is a friend of mine had reached out to me and let me know that she had two friends who had each lost a loved one to suicide that week. And she knew everything I'd been through in losing my dad to suicide when I was 20 years old, as well as going through um, my own postpartum journey and becoming suicidal. And so she asked me if I would write them a letter, letting them know that healing was possible. Three years later, later that letter turned into a book, but it was something that I knew I didn't want to profit off of. And because I have lived all over the country as well as internationally, I also knew that losing my dad was one of the most isolating experiences I'd ever been through. And so I wanted to be able to give this book to anyone who had experienced a loss, whether it was suicide or not. Because the fact is, when we're going through extreme grief, it puts us at risk of becoming suicidal. And my feeling was no one should ever have to pay to know that they are not alone or that support is there for them.
1: Mm. Wow, that is such an incredible story and how that developed. Wow, thank you for sharing that story. There's so much to your story and we will get to it. But the next question is, tell us about your business, All That We Are, and the resources, workshops, trainings, and consultation services you offer.
2: Yes. So All That We Are started, um, actually, I officially launched it one year ago. But the way that it came about was after the book was released, I was invited to speak at different conferences and events for survivors of suicide loss, as well as various mental health events. And what I found was that when I would go to these events, It wasn't listening to the personal stories of grief and trauma that people have been through that was causing me pain. It was actually listening to these so-called experts or leaders in the field who were talking about it in a way that I believed was causing more harm than good, and that their audience didn't even realize how it was impacting them. And so I started trying to teach people how to talk about mental health, how to approach suicide prevention from a place of wellness, so that rather than just trying to stop suicide in the moment of crisis, how do we teach people how to live? And it's been through that work that I was encouraged by a friend of mine who's an attorney to separate my work, to keep Growing Out of Darkness focused on providing that support to individuals who are in need of the book and in need of you know the education services in that realm. But to create all that we are to really focus in on um, some very exciting projects where we are actually going into schools and we are reforming the health curriculum. Mm -hmm. So that instead of it being this health class that none of the kids want to take, it's actually it's we're actually piloting it in Colorado right now. And I'm beyond excited by how it's going. But the kids are engaged. Right? They are connected to the content. We ask their, for their feedback every day. And this is the one class where they actually get to grade the teacher. They get to grade the content and the speakers, the activities and the assignments. And it's giving them a safe space. Right, And what I told the teacher when we, when we started this, there was the question that really pushed him to go in this big direction instead of just making a few tweaks was I asked him, do you remember why you wanted to teach in the first place? Right? What are you hoping to achieve? Because if we're just trying to get these kids to learn facts, like, what's the point? you know?" And, and so I said, you know, these kids are desperate. They're desperate for connection and meaning. And they get slammed all the time because they're always on technology and they're not engaged with current curriculum in schools. But as a mom of a 19-year-old and a 16-year-old, I'm going to admit we did this. We raised our kids to be hooked on technology because every time they were bored or they were being disruptive and we were in a public place and we needed them to behave, what did we do? We gave them a screen, whether it was an iPod or it was a DS or, you know, now the phones and the iPads and all that. But we did. We created this. And so our belief going into the schools, especially, is we are not concerned about them absorbing all of the content. Our primary focus is to give them a place where they know they're safe and connected and give them a taste of what it means to own their own well-being. And so far, it seems to be going really well. And then in addition to that, we are working with businesses surrounding that school because we can go in and give these students lessons on mental health and wellness but if they then go home and want to talk to their parents about it and their parents are like whatever you don't know what you're talking about you know but if we can actually go to the businesses and work with business leaders and train them on this same material can you imagine the dinner conversations or the fact that they might start having dinner conversations Yeah, And so it's really important. Yeah. When we're like, again, this isn't just about suicide prevention. This is about recognizing our choice in our daily lives and how we're moving forward. And so it's more, we can't just focus in on one age group. We need to go in with the students, but we also need to access the parents, but inviting them to go to a school assembly, they don't have time for that. They, you know, and so, but if we can actually reach them at work, and connect with them there and give them digestible content that actually applies to their life. Now we're doing something. Now we're making a difference.
1: Oh my goodness, Jenny. I absolutely appreciate all that you're doing out in community, how you're opening up the conversation, creating safe places and spaces and creating community connection You said so many things here in relation to what I'm nodding, like, yes, yes, yes. Oh, my goodness. You are making so much sense. I've worked in the mental health field, human services field for years. And some of the things that I've always said is creating those safe spaces is really important. Getting the community involved and having a voice in what changes are being made is the way changes are made. Because if you don't, what investment does community have? In those changes being made, training parents, having those conversation with parents so they can have the conversation with their children. I know that when I had health class, our parents had to sign a waiver saying, yes, my kid could be involved in this health class. And some parents didn't sign those waivers because they didn't even want their children to hear about these things. And yet it is so vital. So you reaching those parents, so important because they're the ones who are going to open up those conversations and also create those safe spaces at home as long as they know how to do it
2: mm-hmm.
1: and feel comfortable yep. with having those conversations. I had a mom who was very comfortable having those conversations very early on. So when we talked about menses and we talked about our wellness, our health, you know, protection, all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. she was very open and I was yep. very lucky to have that. Right. But not all children are, and not all parents know how to do that. Mm-hmm. And then also saying about the technology, talking about the technology, that's so important. as a mental health provider, I see that disconnection between that human connection. When we give technology, we're creating a space or a gap where we're getting further and further away from that human connection, being able to identify and understand the emotions. Emotional regulation, like all these different things. And I've said it for years, like we are getting so far away because we're so reliant or conditioned to be on this technology. And so Mm -hmm. for a lot of kids these days, they have grown up with it. They don't know life without it. So we, as the adults or parents or whatever, are the ones Mm -hmm. to take the position of we're going to have family time without technology. We're Mm -hmm. going to put those things down. Please don't bring them to the dinner table. So all of that good stuff. So they can learn about what does sadness look like? What is being upset look like? What can you, and having those conversations. So Mm -hmm. I love so much that you've talked about here. So thank you because I think this is absolutely the right direction.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, even like with the technology, let's use it instead of criticizing them and shaming them. You know, and so like one of the videos I made for this teacher, I also sent him slides to give to the kids. And he said to me, well, I did give them the slides, but I didn't let them open up their Chromebooks while I had your video playing. And and I said, well, why not? Like, that was the point is that that way the video was just of me and I wasn't having to go back and forth between slides. He said, yeah, but I've learned that if I let them have their Chromebooks on while we're showing a video, they'll just play a video game, like a quiet game. Mm. And I said, so let them so let them like, honestly, I, I mean, I don't have the science to back this, but my gut is telling me that if they're playing a quiet little game, I would much rather them do that. It's, I don't think it's any different than doodling, than sitting at their desk, listening to this woman who they, you know, only kind of know through screens, um, I'll actually be there next week. But sitting there thinking, I'm so bored or I'm so uncomfortable with this topic or that if they're feeling anxious or uncomfortable or bored in any way, they're not going to hear anything. But if they have the release of playing this little quiet game on their computer and that's going on in the background, they are actually hearing it. They are actually hearing it. And again, this is how they've grown up is with multiple screens on at a time. And so my feeling is let them. I'm not worried about it. What I want them to know is that they have agency and ownership in how they're moving forward. Yeah.
1: Well, there's so much here. There's so much good conversation around everything that you're talking about and how we can grow as a community, how we can impact our children in different ways and be part of that conversation as a group as a community, as a family. And my next question is, we're going to move on. Can you tell us a bit? Because I know I've kind of went backwards here in relation to asking about your nonprofit, asking about your company, but I wanted to go through that and then get to this. Get to your story, your book, Growing Through Grief. Tell us about that. Tell us about that story.
2: Yeah, so um, my story really... I'm actually going to connect it to why it's so important to me that we're creating these safe spaces Mm -hmm. and why I said to the teacher, that is the most vital aspect of what we're doing is because when I look back over my life and I recognize I had a hard childhood. And I think a lot of people can say that, you know, what a lot of people don't know if they were just looking at the surface was that my mom's family was riddled with child molesters and I grew up in a home where I didn't feel safe unless my dad was there. Unfortunately, my dad worked shift work, so I could go weeks at a time without seeing him. But when I did see him, on the days that we were on the same schedule, there was always this running joke in my family that I had to have my 15 minutes. And that's what my dad could give me. There were six kids in my family, and he was busy with lots of things, but he always guaranteed me, 15 minutes of undivided attention. I don't know where I would be today had he not done that. So even when I was in high school, I can remember standing in the window of the front room of our house, looking out, watching, waiting for him to get home. He was everything to me. And when I was 20 years old, he died from suicide. And... I was getting my degree in psychology when he died, and it didn't make sense to me. You know, this man who had always been my safe space, this man who I knew that would pull over and help anyone on the side of the road, it didn't matter where we were, in our hometown or driving across country. And so when I managed to go back to school after he died, I went to my professors and I said, this is what's happened. I've lost my dad. I'm not okay. And I need to understand what happened to him. And my teachers were incredible because they not only supported me in making sure that I had what I needed to to be able to function, but they helped me understand what happened to my dad. And they pushed me in ways that I would have never experienced had I not been going through that program and been so open and vulnerable about what happened. And um, and so this is where I can say, like my my journey in healing after losing my dad is very different than the typical person's journey. And after losing my dad and then finishing my degree in psychology, I went on to become a crisis counselor and a public educator on suicide prevention. Mm-hmm. And then about five years later, I actually had my first daughter. I missed all the signs that I was going through postpartum depression and I became suicidal. And I used to think that there just was something wrong with me or that I was just so sick that I didn't realize I was going through post depression. But now I realize it's because the majority of traditional suicide prevention programs are not effective. They are not truly teaching us what we need to know to be able to identify if someone is going down that dark path, if they are becoming suicidal. And, and that has become so much of what I do now, in addition to language, the words we're using, but also what are we truly looking for? And not only that, but how do we identify the root causes of why this is happening?
1: So important, so valuable what you're doing in community, the language, the education, creating safe community spaces reaching parents where they can be reached versus taking them out of their schedule and trying to have them go somewhere where they don't have time. Mm -hmm. I do these one minute meditations during the day because I have one minute during my day to relax and I can put in three of those during my day like you. You're going there, giving them your one minute meditation, so to speak. You're giving Mm -hmm. them that time in their space. And that is so critical is reaching people where they're at. Mm -hmm. And so even the students, even these young folks. And so I love how you're reaching community, changing the language, creating awareness, because something you said resonates with me so strongly Every time I'm on a radio program or I'm on a podcast, especially when speaking of or about death from suicide regarding veterans, talk a lot about it. I've been on a lot of radio shows. One of the things they say is, yes, our language, how we're connecting with community, and also how we're educating. Because a lot of people, we expect to recognize the signs or symptoms. They don't. They don't even know. They don't even know. And a lot of times they're not there Mm -hmm. Yeah, we just saw Twitch.
2: And sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you, but it's, it's because of the way it's being taught. Yes. And it's being taught in a way of, I mean, you have the hindsight is 2020 where you can look back and go, Oh, I missed that. I missed that. Well, that's because the way that it's taught is a hundred different possible scenarios, you know, warning signs. I mean, it's like saying you might have COVID if, right? The difference is with COVID, you sneeze and you think, oh, do I have COVID? You can go to your local pharmacy, pick up a test, swab your nose, and you'll know. Here's how you know if you'd like for me to share with you. There are three factors that put someone at the greatest risk for suicide. And I know these three factors because not only did I read my dad's letters that he had written, we discovered them after he died. I have read them over and over again. I myself has, have gone through being suicidal on multiple occasions, and I helped my daughter navigate being suicidal to thriving. And so, and not only that, with other friends as well and, and clients, that there are three factors that exist. And then when we understand those three factors, we can actually intervene. So the three factors, number one, is extreme distress. And extreme distress doesn't have to be job loss or death in the family or chronic illness. For someone who is going through mental health challenges, whose ability to think clearly has been compromised, extreme distress can be brought on by a bad haircut. It, for our kids, it could be getting a B instead of an A. It could have um, be from an intense conversation. And so this is where people go, okay, well, Jenny, you just said there's not a hundred different things to look for. How do I know if someone's in extreme distress if it can be caused by anything? The way we know someone's in extreme distress is that this person is fixating on a problem, right? Or everything is a problem. And especially if that's not their normal behavior. The second factor is isolation. And I want people to think beyond just typical what we understand as is isolation in that that someone might go and and close themselves off and put themselves, you know, in a space alone, because we also want to understand that some people need that to recover. They need that to heal. My daughter, for one, my younger one, she needs her alone time to feel better. Right. And I think there's a lot of introverts out there. They're like, yes, hallelujah. Just because I'm asking for alone time doesn't mean that I'm suicidal. Right. But what we do want to pay attention to because the most dangerous form of isolation is when an individual is surrounded by people and they don't feel that they can openly share who they are, what they're experiencing, or what their thoughts are without being judged or shamed. And this is where you have someone like Twitch, someone who is this beautiful soul who you don't even have to meet them to feel their energy and their you know excitement for life, is that and I don't want to say this specifically for him, but I do know other friends of mine who we think of as the life of the party, right? They are, they are the one you want to have there. They often also are the one who just doesn't show up at all, right? It's either they're there, all bells and whistles, or they don't show up, they're the biggest flake. Well, I reached out to my friends that were this way and I asked, why? And what I heard from them was, if I can't show up, as that person, the one everyone's expecting me to be, I can't show up at all because all I'll be asked all night is what's wrong with you? What's the matter? Why are what you're normally the life of the party? What's going on? And what I encourage people is if you're ever concerned about someone, or if you have someone that is withdrawing, who is pulling away rather than going to them and saying, what's wrong with you, invite them to go for a walk, invite them to go see a movie. Ask them to just spend time with you, right? It's about connection. We don't always have to know every detail of what's going on, but when someone feels safe, they tend to share. So it's about creating a safe space. So then our third factor is a shift in belief. And what I mean by this is that a person, when they start to believe that this life is never going to get easier, that everything is ending for them, that the people around them would be better off without them you combine that way of thinking and they truly believe it at this point with the isolation and the extreme distress that puts someone at the greatest risk for suicide now i've been talking about this for years especially with the people closest to me and this is how i know it works is because in february of 2021 i had a friend who called me and he said hey jenny You taught me the three factors that put someone at the greatest risk for suicide, and I'm worried about you because I know you're going through extreme distress with your divorce. I haven't heard from you in almost two weeks, which makes me think you're isolating yourself. So tell me, what are you believing right now? Now, this was not someone I would have immediately thought to call and say, hey, I'm not okay. But in that moment, I knew he understood and I knew I was safe to be honest. And I said, I'm not okay. I don't think even my children need me at this point. And he said, Do you want me to come over? And I said, No, because it was late at night and he lives a bit away. So he said, Then I'm going to stay on the phone with you. Now, what he did for me was he created that safe space. He pulled me out of my isolation. He gave me a space to talk about what was going on. And because I process externally, I was able to process some of what was going on, which pulled me out of my distress. By doing those two things, he brought me back to center so that I knew my children do need me, right? Now, is this the cure-all be-all? No. But what it allows us to do is create a, a space of safety and stability. We get this person to a point where they can process what's going on. And then we look at what's actually causing this. For me, it was, you know, the anxiety and uncertainty of divorce and my whole life flipping upside down. He couldn't change that for me. Right. right? But those constant, like we, we would constantly check in with each other and it gave me what I needed to move through that. And, and also knowing that it was like, Oh, you know what? It's time for me to go get some acupuncture. It's time for me to do more meditation. It's time for me to do things. Sometimes we are doing everything we know to do and we're still struggling with our mental health.
1: Yeah, absolutely. What I love about all that you've described there are the three steps. Those three steps are so important. So valuable. We talk about that in the clinical field, but what I tend to say is catch me, please catch me when I start getting too cerebral, because we say things like catastrophic thinking where everything's loom and doom or, you know, overwhelmed, or you Mm -hmm. feel like you have no meaning or purpose, right. Mm -hmm. In life. And like you said, I don't think my kids or anybody needs me. We call that catastrophic thinking or generalization, or there's a lot of things. And so what I love about how you are saying this, you're choosing the right words. You're explaining it. Sometimes it comes down to those basic, simple terms where everybody can talk about those things.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Because sometimes even with me, I'm like, gosh, I need to remember, break it down make it into these simple sound bites because what you're doing is with those three steps, it's consumable. It's digestible. I understand it very easily. And I Mm -hmm. love that your friend was able to apply it with you. Mm -hmm. That is so important. So not only do you have the theory, the practice, the application, boom, three steps. That needs to be on everybody's refrigerator. (laughs) right? I'm serious. Those three steps. And how to apply it, I think is so, so, so key. I want to thank you so much for sharing about your book, sharing Growing Through Grief. My last question for you, Jenny, is as we come to the close of the interview, if you were to leave the listeners with some words of wisdom, what would they be?
2: I think the question that changed my life to move me in the direction of living a life of purpose, passion, and pleasure was when I asked myself, knowing I don't have control over the people, place, or things, what do I want to experience in this life?
1: Thank you, Jenny, for joining me on the Core Women podcast today.
2: Absolutely. Thank you for having me.
1: You can follow Jenny Landon Thrasher on LinkedIn, Jenny dot all that we are on Instagram allthatweare.com. And you can also find her book, Growing Through Grief by Jenny Landon on Amazon.
0: Thank you for joining us on the Core Women podcast with Dr. Summer Watson. We're so glad you're here and would love to connect more with you. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Core Women and on Twitter at Core Women One. For more about Core Women and Dr. Watson, visit corewomen.com. Want more support and resources for amazing women like you? Great. Join Dr. Watson and Jen Fontanilla at the Life, Love & Money Collective, a core women production that aids in understanding the key traits that might be getting in the way of living a life that you are absolutely passionate about. Connect with Summer and Jen and find out more at thelifeloveandmoney.com.